Hi, I'm Sarah Trott, and welcome to the Fourth Trimester Podcast. I'm a new mama, and this podcast is all about postpartum care for the first few months following birth, the time period also known as the Fourth Trimester. My postpartum doula, Esther Gallagher, is my co-host. She's a mother, grandmother, perinatal educator, birth and postpartum care provider. Fourth Trimester Care, our topic, is about the practical, emotional, and social support parents and baby require. And importantly, it helps set the tone for the continuing journey of parenting. Good morning. Uh, Very early morning in my case, um, listeners. This is Esther Gallagher again with our next Fourth Trimester Podcast. Hope everyone's well in the new year. And uh, we have a wonderful guest today, Lisa Hendrickson is going to talk to us about fertility in the fourth trimester. But before we get going, I just want to remind everybody to check out uh, not only this podcast, but our website, fourthtrimesterpodcast.com, and our Facebook page, where I do a lot of posting. Uh, Reposting, I think, would be more accurate, but there's lots of fun stuff on that page. We also have a Patreon page linked to our uh, website. So if you can, and I think you can, uh, subscribe and support us in any way, we are ever so grateful. So let's get on with the show. So Lisa, I'm so happy to have you on the show. I think this is um, a unique show uh, so far on our roster and let's get started. Tell us who you are, what your story is, what brought you to our podcast. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me, Esther. It's my pleasure to be on the show. Um, so what brought me to the podcast is it's a, I'll, I'll try to make it brief. Uh, I, I mean, everyone has a story, right? But in my case, I discovered fertility awareness at a really young age. So I was about 19 or so and looking for birth control. And Me too. (laughs) And I had a distrust for the pill. See, I had been put on the pill because I had painful periods. And so I had never used it to actually prevent pregnancy. And so I wasn't taking it at the correct time. And I had read the, you know, insert. So I knew that I would always be scared that I would be pregnant and then like not know because... I realized that when I was on the pill, I didn't have like a real period. So it just scared me. And so I kind of had this thought of like, well, if I can't trust the pill, I'm going to use condoms. And then I was like, well, if I'm going to use condoms, then why do I need the pill? (laughs) So (laughs) it was around that time that I discovered fertility awareness and it really changed everything for me. And I think what made the, the most significant impact at that time was that um, when I discovered fertility awareness, it was the first time I learned that I wasn't fertile every single day of my cycle that there's actually only a small window of fertility. It's like five to six days. Mm -hmm. And the rest of the time I can't get pregnant. And that really blew my mind. And And in the meantime, let's just say, sorry to interrupt, but in the meantime, let's just say that if a man is fertile, he's fertile every time. Right? Right? (laughs) Women, Women are only fertile, you know, a little part of the time and men are fertile all the time. 
right? And that's exactly the, like, that's exactly kind of the issue because we're the ones, most of the women that I've met in my entire life, I'm sure you included, have been taught, like, I was taught in school that there was no safe days I could get pregnant every single day. And it's, like you said, men, the ones that are fertile all the time. So what ended up happening was that when I discovered that, I ran to the bookstore, bought Tony Weschler's Taking Charge of Your Fertility. This was nearly 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then I, you know, started learning fertility awareness and I lived in this kind of magical place where on my university campus, there was a group of women that taught charting. And so, you know, I would, I kept going and, and attending and then I eventually took a training class and I began teaching. And so I've been charting my own cycles and teaching women to chart their cycles for nearly 20 years now. And Fantastic. <laughs> at some point in there, I decided to start a podcast. You know, I had my first son. And I kind of looked around and realized that I was sitting on all this information and the majority of women that I knew still didn't know. Like most women don't know, we're not taught. So we don't know Mm -hmm. how to identify fertility in our cycle. Uh, Just the most basic information about our bodies that we should be taught, we're not. And so I was like, well, hey, I can start a podcast. Let me just put this information out there and see if anyone wants to know about it. Right on. Um, (laughs) And that was four years ago. And then since then, I... um, I'm here now because I just uh, wrote my first book, The Fifth Vital Sign, uh, Master Your Cycles and Optimize Your Fertility. And again, it's my way of really putting out the information that isn't there, filling that gap between what our education system isn't teaching us. Because I'm sure that when you went to school, you learned a lot about your ears and your eyes and all of the different parts of your body. But for some reason, we're taught very little, you know, basically nothing about our menstrual cycles and why they're important for obviously fertility and pregnancy, but why they're important for health as well. Like even if a woman doesn't want to get pregnant, it's still important for her to have healthy cycles. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And this is ancient knowledge. It's nothing new. What's new is that we live in an era where that understanding of health is suppressed. Yes. And it's it's very interesting if you kind of think about why that is. I mean, I've had a lot of years to ponder this, but, uh, but I mean, (laughs) but it's like, um, even if you think about modern science, which is what our medical system is based on, I mean, the, the scientific research was primarily done on male animals and, you know, they wouldn't even research on female animals because it's like too complicated, right? Like it just adds too much complexity. So, I mean, it starts there. It's a, it's a very deep fundamental exclusion, um, really. And, as women, we're the ones who suffer. Um, so when it comes to, so I mean, the main message of the book is that your menstrual cycle is important. And so for any woman who's kind of paid attention to her cycle, um, or maybe, you know, just having this conversation today will kind of illuminate it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm working with women who are really tracking their cycle in a really specific way. And when you do that, you start to see that um, your cycle responds to different scenarios in your life. So, for example, if you're feeling stressed, if your diet is really poor, if you actually have a health condition or an endocrine disorder or something like that, then you'll notice that your cycle changes in response to it. And it's kind of like this real-time measure of health. And if we pay attention to it, we can gather all this information about our health. So, for instance, women who stop menstruating, you know, for overexercise or undernutrition or something like that, that's a huge sign that there's something wrong. But in our kind of modern world, 
we're not really taught that our menstrual cycle matters and almost to the point that if your cycle stops coming or if your periods are really way too light or um, even if your cycles are really irregular, you're kind of just told that that's fine. Go on the pill. It'll regulate it. And then when you want to get pregnant, come back and we'll give you some drugs to make you ovulate. Uh, you know, um, when I was going through perimenopause, I simultaneously had a fibroid and I was bleeding excessively, excessively. And I could not get female protect practitioners. I, I had to educate myself and demand the health care that I required so that I didn't bleed to death. Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine in this day and age? Unfortunately, I can. <laughs> I mean, thank, thank God for, for Chinese medicine. Thank yeah. God for Chinese medicine. Right? Because they could say, oh, yeah, there's something really wrong. And it might be this. And you should do that and find out this. And, you know, I mean, honestly, I would have bled to death. So well, so sorry to hear that you had to go through it. But because of the field that I'm in, I can tell you that that's not uncommon. So for instance, a woman um, contacted me earlier this year and she told me, she's like, my friend has been bleeding since January and it was June when she messaged me. So this woman had been like uh. bleeding for six months and she's like, nobody knew how serious it was. Like she didn't and neither did her doctor. She's like, now she's been diagnosed with uterine cancer. And like she had to, yeah, so she had to basically advocate for herself, like her doctors weren't doing anything about it or testing her. And finally, she got fed up and decided to go and get like, you know what I mean? Force the issue like you were describing yeah. mm -hmm. uh, to get the testing done. And then they discovered that it was something serious. And this is exactly my point. Your menstrual cycle is a sign of health. And if you know what the normal parameters are, like obviously, like bleeding every day is not normal. But for some reason, our medical system doesn't necessarily always prioritize things like that right because it's just like oh well she's just bleeding it's fine because you know uteruses uteri they bleed but really if we had that sense of like okay there's a normal and an abnormal and if it goes outside of the normal consistently for a period of time that's a big deal and we need to figure it out um so i just i suppose i shared that just so that you know unfortunately it's like super common for these things not to be taken seriously but i'm sure you know that <laughs> <laughs> yes yes i do but you know thank you because of course i'm not sure our listeners would and that's why i do the podcast and that's why you do your podcast and here we are so lisa let's turn to the specifics of first tracking your cycle, and second, specifically, why tracking your fertility in the fourth trimester could be very important I, and, and how to do that. Because most women are going to be told, go home, you had your baby, come back in four weeks or six weeks. Four is the new exciting parameter, oh right? Come back in six weeks. I don't know why they're having you come back in four weeks. They have nothing to tell you at this point. Uh, and you'll get much better health care from somebody, somebody else. But, okay, fine. Here you go. You go home for four weeks. You're breastfeeding. You're bleeding. You're going through all kinds of hormonal uh changes, which also manifest as social, emotional, and physical, of course. And you're not thinking about your fertility, which is fair to not think of it in those terms. But 
sometime in that first three months, your uterus will heal and recover, your ovaries will go through hormonal shifts, and you're very likely to become fertile. So talk to us about that. Well, yeah, I mean, fertility awareness tracking or just having that sense of what happens. So just to kind of give the overview in the menstrual cycle, I mean, because we're not fertile every day, then what fertility awareness allows you to do is to pinpoint when you're fertile. Mm -hmm. And so uh, as you approach ovulation, so before, you know, before you even ovulate, your estrogen levels are rising, and that is triggering your body to produce cervical mucus. So um, a lot of women have experienced it, some knew about it, and some didn't. But for women who may not really have had that experience, if you've ever kind of gone to the bathroom, like because you feel like your period has started, like you feel something wet, and then you go Mm -hmm. to the bathroom and there's nothing there. Uh, that, that could be. And then also for women who've ever thought they had this, you know, you saw this discharge and thought, oh my goodness, discharge means infection. So you go to the doctor and get yourself tested and it's clear there's nothing, there's no, you know. So a lot of women have had certain experiences where um, they they had their mucus, but they may not have known that it was like a normal and healthy part of their cycle. <laughs> um, yeah. But so you produce cervical mucus, it has this look like uh, raw egg whites, like clear raw egg Mm -hmm. whites and stretchy and then sometimes it also will look like creamy white hand lotion and that is when you have that mucus your mucus is what keeps sperm alive for up to five days so that by the time you ovulate um, the sperm is there ready and waiting to you know for you to conceive so mucus is the primary sign um, of fertility and then also your uh, basal body temperature is another important sign after ovulation your waking body temperature so basically your resting temperature increases and if you were to like record it in an app or plot it on a graph every day you would notice that after ovulation the temperatures are higher than before and then also your cervical position changes so just as that general overview you can actually track when you're fertile in your cycle and um, so when you're in the postpartum period uh, it's the same thing that applies so before you ever get your first period like a true period you have to ovulate first. So a true menstrual period only happens after ovulation. And so what that means is that your fertility is going to return, meaning that you're going to produce cervical mucus and ovulate before you ever have your period. So it's possible that you are going to be fertile before you really have that kind of you know, sign, like the period is a sign, mm-hmm. but before that, so there's women who obviously have gotten pregnant then before their periods came back, right? Absolutely. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I think it's helpful to know what factors will impact how rapidly your period returns. Because as you mentioned, you know, some women do uh, have their fertility back within the first three months postpartum, but other women don't actually start menstruating again until eight months or nine months or 10 months Mm -hmm. or even a year. Yeah. Um, And so there's a lot of variation there. And uh, basically, I mean, when you've just had a baby, uh, the the biggest factor that's going to determine... how quickly your period returns is whether or not you're breastfeeding and how much skin to skin contact. So there's something called ecological breastfeeding. And essentially, you know, if your baby's breastfeeding on demand, you're not, you know, giving any formula. So the baby's only relying on you for breast milk. If you're doing lots of skin to skin contact, uh, that triggers, um, that, that basically it just triggers uh, the oxytocin, it triggers um, the hormone prolactin, and that has a suppressive effect on ovulation. We uh, say that um, 
estrogen and prolactin are antagonistic. Yes. <laughs> and so the more prolactin, um, the, the more of a suppressive effect that this would have. And so, um, so then it really depends. So for a woman who's not able to breastfeed or who is just not breastfeeding, she may get her periods back quite quickly within the, you know, the second month, <laughs> the third month after. I think that's really important to know because you just had a baby. Like you're not actually thinking about having your period again when, you, when your baby's under three months old. But if you're not breastfeeding, it, you know, your fertility will return, you know, quite quickly. You can anticipate that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Irish I mean, there's, a, there's part of a re- Yeah, there's a reason why my mom had four kids in five years. Yeah. And that's because she was told not to breastfeed. Oh, wow. I mean, you know, her breastfeeding was suppressed in her case, as was very common for her generation. Yeah. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Therefore, the the, the phrase breast is best because we had to kind of bring it back, which is tragic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I would say that's the the kind of one of the biggest uh, factors. And then as you continue on, so your baby's going to go through various milestones. Um, For some women, when their baby starts sleeping longer, stretches throughout the night, or when you introduce solid foods, for some women, that would be uh, when all of a sudden kind of the breastfeeding is a little bit less, or there's like a bit of a, a stretch between feeds or those types of things. For some women, having their fertility return coincides with those types of things. And for other mm-hmm. women, it just kind of continues <laughs> um, until, like I said, more like the eight month or the 12 month mark. I think it's helpful. I did an interview with a woman who mentioned that. I think I forget what she said. Either it was her or one of her listeners who hadn't had her period back and it had been like two years. So I think it's important to note that, I mean, if your period hasn't returned between that kind of 12 to 18 month mark, you do want to get yourself checked out. The breastfeeding thing, it does not like at that stage, it's not the breastfeeding (laughs) that's suppressing your cycle. And it is possible to have uh, like any woman at any point in life, it is possible to have other factors that are affecting your cycle. So postpartum is a really, uh, it's, it's, you're most likely to have a thyroid issue postpartum, right? Other than any other time in your life. It's very, Mm -hmm. very common. I'm not saying every woman experiences it, but I'm just saying it's much more common to have certain things happen, um, such as thyroid. So um, in addition to every other thing that could affect your cycle. So I think it's important to know, like there is a a point at which if your period hasn't returned postpartum, you should actually just get a check and have your doctor look into it. Sorry, you were going to say something. Oh, I was just going to say the thyroid gland is very, very much under uh, attended when it comes to women's health. Uh, it's it's one of those things that's easy to examine, easy to test, and we cannot get healthcare providers to address appropriately. And it causes potentially lifelong, gradual, or sometimes very dramatic damage to women's health. So yeah, get your thyroid (laughs) checked. Get your thyroid checked anyway. I tell my postpartum clients, when you go in for your six-week check, just get your thyroid checked. Even if everything seems perfect, hunky-punky, it's good to know where you're at with your thyroid. Well, a couple, like one interesting piece of information that I think is is really helpful to center this, this part of the discussion is that when you get pregnant, within the first few weeks of pregnancy, your thyroid is 
already required to produce 50% more thyroid hormone. Mm -hmm. So like immediately (laughs) upon pregnancy. So for a lot of women whose thyroids were like, your thyroid was okay, but it was kind of like on the border. Then pregnancy immediately pushes it out. Yes. um, And even for women who actually know they have a thyroid issue and are on medication, when they become pregnant, again, like that's the time to get checked again, because often the dosage has to be modified quite quickly. Yeah. So, yeah. And then postpartum, I mean, there's all these things we could talk about, but pregnancy increases your, you know, nutrient requirements for virtually every nutrient that we know of including the nutrients that support thyroid function, like iodine, selenium, zinc, all those things. So I think just having that knowledge of like, oh, wow, like pregnancy puts a huge strain on my thyroid. Yeah. Um, So, I mean, that's just, this is why, again, it's important to know what those normal parameters are so that you have that sense of like, oh, okay, I know that it's it's not normal (laughs) if my period doesn't return 18 months postpartum, because Mm -hmm. maybe... I mean, in our culture, we're so period negative that many women might be like, oh, thank goodness. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm getting a break. This is wonderful. But no, mm-hmm. it is not. And to circle our, our back around to those nutrients, because as everyone knows who listens to my podcast, <laughs> I'm, you know, very, very adamant about postpartum nutrition. There's a reason why in Asian cultures, you feed a woman seaweed soup <laughs> and bone broth and, you know, all kinds of important nutrient-rich foods in the fourth trimester. It's so that this doesn't happen. <laughs> People. Well, well, and if you think about it, the way I always just describe it to my clients and um, is like a, a metaphor for a bank account. So if you think of your nutrient mm-hmm. source as a bank account, there's no scenario where you're going to go into, you know, nine months of pregnancy and then, you know, however long you breastfeed, three months to two years or more. I know I breastfed two years or more per child. And that, that's mm-hmm. five, years, like over five years of breastfeeding for me. Like there's no scenario where you're going to do all of that. Like your body, it was such an interesting experience, you know, having having my first child. Because at some point it occurs to you that like I am your source of nutrition. Yes. <laughs> like you're growing and it's like <laughs> I am eating and you are growing and this is all you're eating. It's just me. So yeah. really, if you think about it that way, I mean, the only thing that happens during pregnancy and breastfeeding in many ways is withdrawal and so of, of the bank account. And so mm-hmm. it's important preconception, obviously, if, if, you're, if you're able to do that to really um, – build up your nutrient stores. But throughout breastfeeding, especially if you're planning for another baby, you can think of the postpartum period, that fourth trimester, as simultaneously preconception if you're planning for baby number two or three or four or what have you. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Well put. So um, so let's circle back, Lisa, and talk about what are some of the little more subtle signs of fertility in terms of that mucus, because um, by the way, that's when I taught myself about fertility awareness was between my two kids, because I didn't like what was being offered uh, in the world to prevent pregnancy, between, you know, at that time in my life, you know, which was 19 and 20. Um, so what are we looking for? in the postpartum period that that is the lead up 
to fertile mucus, which is egg white, raw egg white. So, you know, like how does our body begin to send subtle signs? Well, I mean, it's not exactly the same in every woman. Um, there's two main types of mucus. Um, so the clear, stretchy, uh, you know, I would call that peak mucus. And then, and that's when you're already super fertile. Well, you're fertile technically when you have it. because, And the reason is because sperm can survive in it. That's the reason it's fertile. Because <laughs> yes. um, without, when you don't have mucus outside of your fertile window, your vagina is actually quite acidic. Your cervix is closed, blocked with a thick mucus plug that actually, so you, like I, I have all these analogies, right? So like um, when I was in my 20s, you know, I went to the club a lot. So I think of it like you're, there's a bouncer at the front. No one can get in. Um, yeah. So that's why <laughs> mucus is important. So for some women, when they approach ovulation, they go straight into peak for other women, mm. they start to produce some lotion, like it looks like lotion, like creamy white yes. hand lotion. Mm-hmm. But both types are fertile because the reason, again, is because sperm can survive in it. And when you have mucus, it actually means your cervix is open. So there's like this tiny window. And what we're trying to figure out with this fertility awareness thing is whether your your cervix is open or closed, essentially. Like we're trying to figure ah. out if we've got this thing open for business or if it's closed. So when you have mucus it's open. I mean, there's cases, um, there are situations where um, postpartum, some women will actually see a small amount of mucus every day. And that's a, that's more complex situation, but I just want to put it out there. Mm-hmm. So yeah. for example, um, breastfeeding, when the baby is suckling on you at, at the breast, it triggers oxytocin. Um, yes. And, and oxytocin, uh, I can't say it right, but oxytocin <laughs> is the love hormone and it's what we also produce when we have an orgasm. So although anyone who's breastfed knows that it's absolutely not like sexy, it often hurts a lot. <laughs> but um, what can happen because it is releasing this ox- oxytocin is that some women will actually produce some arousal fluid. Uh, which is like a physical reaction to this stimulation that's happening and the increased hormones. It's not, it, it's not related mm-hmm. to like feeling a certain way. I just, I like to clarify because I've seen some women who haven't yet had children, like, you know, that's they, cause you know, the breasts are associated with sexual stuff in our sure. culture and yeah. all of that. So just to kind mm-hmm. of clarify that it's a phys- physiological v- response, but for some women that can make it a little bit more challenging for them because they are seeing a certain level of, 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 um, of mucus, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And it can be a little challenging to determine the difference between arousal fluid and your cervical mucus. Arousal fluid is from the vagina, correct? The yeah. vaginal area and, and even lower, um, in the vulva. Well, when you become aroused, um, yes, the arousal fluid is actually pushed out of the vaginal wall, whereas cervical mucus Mm -hmm. comes from the cervix. I mean, if I'm working with a woman trying to determine this, if a woman has the reaction that I'm describing where you're actually producing it because like kind of like in response to breastfeeding, Mm -hmm. then it's going to be situational. So it's going to be like when you breastfeed, you're going to see it. With mucus, mucus is not situational. Mucus yeah. is produced in response to hormones, so it's only going to be present as you approach ovulation. 
And then the qualities are a bit different. But to answer your initial question of what to watch for and what are some of those signs. So for a woman who's never done any of this before and she's just like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. (laughs) Um, The first (laughs) thing to do would be to, I always, you know, I think of it like as habit habit stacking. I think there's a book called Habit Stacking. But when you go to the bathroom, I mean, every woman listening, when you go pee, you're going to wipe yourself. (laughs) So what I'm suggesting is to add an activity to something you're already doing. Like you could call it conscious wiping, or you could just pay attention while you're wiping anyways, Mm -hmm. but you want to start wiping. And when you're wiping, you're going to wipe like from front to back, like somewhat for some women, that's kind of awkward. We got wipe from front to back and you're going to wipe across your perineum. And that's the little space of skin between the vaginal opening and the anus. And Mm -hmm. as you wipe, You're going to basically feel either it's going to feel kind of dry or it might feel a bit smooth or it's going to feel like super slippery. There's only three options. (laughs) It's going to be one of those three. And what happens is as you approach ovulation, when you're producing your cervical mucus, you'll start to notice that it actually feels quite slippery. So if anyone's ever gone to the bathroom and you wipe and it's like, like (laughs) I always say like the head hitting the back of the toilet. Or you're wiping and it's like there's something there and you end up having to like wipe several times to kind of like, you know what I mean? Dry the area. So Mm -hmm. that would be the like, that's the sign. Like that's the the kind of first sign that you um, and then when you look at your toilet paper, you know, if you pull off some stuff that's stretching um, between Mm -hmm. you, I mean, not every woman has like a, a large, large amount, but pregnancy has been known to improve mucus production. So it is very possible that even for women that weren't necessarily noticing a lot of this before pregnancy, after pregnancy, they might actually start to see like good, significant, like much, like, you know, I'm saying more than they were seeing before. Yeah. So that would be the first sign to watch for. And also some of the subtle signs. I mean, you know, don't you think it's funny that a woman would conceive like so soon after pregnancy, she's so busy, the baby's up, she's probably not necessarily having sex all the time. So around that time when your fertility is returning, you know, your libido is probably going to be up. And what's interesting is you might find your partner more attractive, like you might be more likely to have sex with your partner around that time, but your partner on the flip side like catches your pheromones, whether he's aware of it or not. And so your partner is actually more likely to be like on, on you. (laughs) Um, Cause I, I always think that's interesting, right? Cause I've spoken to so many women over the years and it's like, we only did it once. Well, yeah, you did. (laughs) You did it like around that time because mother nature is trying to get pregnant. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So um, like that's something to watch for depending on how kind of in tune you are with your libido and all of that. Like Mm -hmm. that would be when you actually feel like, huh? (laughs) Yeah. I'm not just constantly receptive. I like want it now. And not every, again, I always feel like the need to qualify, like not every woman is like, you know, it's not the same. Every woman's experience is not the same, but I've been around this field long enough to know that that is actually a thing. And a lot of women really resonate with feeling it more in that time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if you notice all of a sudden that that libido is coming back and you start to see that clear stretchy mucus, or you start to feel that kind of like, it's, it's different. Like if you actually try to wipe every, like pay attention every day when you go to the bathroom anyways, 
when you notice a shift, like a change into this more slippery type, like that, that is your sign. Um, and so, and that's why you can get pregnant before your period ever comes back. So for a woman who's kind of doing this and noting it, maybe she, you know, downloads a charting app or something like that. And is kind of playing with this for the first time. If you do notice those signs, and then you notice that the mucus kind of goes away. So it kind of goes back to dry or like you're back to kind of what it was before. And then about, you know, two weeks later, you get your period. Then that's that's what it is. Like that's a way mm-hmm. to confirm ovulation. Yeah. And um, I just want to circle back around and make this comment. You know, I used to be so... Um, analytical about the mucus and I I had a fundamental misunderstanding I thought if I was seeing sticky tacky mucus that I was in the quote-unquote safe zone and I realize now I'm talking to you Lisa all these years later 40 years later that actually the fact that I was seeing the sticky tacky meant that it had exited my cervix because it was now being replaced by the fertile, the, you know, not the, the bouncer, right? The bouncer had left the, left the building. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so I was on the verge, I mean, I was literally now fertile and on the verge of peak fertility. And I just didn't realize like that, of course. It was all the days that I didn't see any mucus at all, let alone the sticky tacky or the peak fertility egg white stuff. Those were the days I wasn't fertile. (laughs) And as soon as I started to see the sticky tacky that then became more lotion-y and then became egg whitey and then fell off, you know, stopped, You know, like that was my cycle, my personal cycle, right? I went through the whole (laughs) trajectory every month, not realizing that, okay, well, if I already see sticky tacky, we're about to be in the zone like now. So yeah, it's interesting to track it. Of course, I was also tracking my temperature and that was more, you know, that was giving me other indicators that go along with all this. Well, that's a really, I mean, that's a really important point. Um, I think, I mean, as a, as a fertility awareness educator myself, uh, I do see the, the benefit and value in, you know, working with somebody even just for a short time to make sure you're clear on these facts, especially when you're trying to avoid pregnancy. Uh, because, I mean, there's kind of this idea that like only the clear stretchy mucus is fertile, but I've, you know, since I've been doing this for a while and I've seen so many women's charts over the years, you can get pregnant on a day where you have uh, mucus that looks like hand lotion. <laughs> I've yes. had clients that I want, like I've had a few clients that didn't produce uh, peak mucus for a variety of reasons. There's a few different reasons that can interfere with your cervical mucus production and they were conceiving with their non-peak lotion type mucus. So it's really helpful to, yeah. yeah, because at the end of the day, I mean, the reason that the mucus might be cloudy and lotiony as opposed to clear and stretchy uh, could be just related. There's different types of mucus and it could just be related to how much of a certain type of mucus that you're producing um, as a mucus your your cervix is you know, kind of like at the top of your vagina. So as you produce cervical mucus, it kind of runs down the walls of your vagina. So we also have vaginal cell slough. And, um, and uh, as the mucus kind of runs down the walls, it can kind of accumulate that. 
And so for a woman who's seeing, you know, clear, stretchy, she's stretching it all between her fingers, she might also just have a larger quantity. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's, these are all nuances. So for a woman who is trying to use this method as birth control, what the research tells us is that when used correctly, it is up to 99.4% effective. And that particular study, uh, they had a group of women who were trained by instructors in the symptothermal method, meaning they were trained to observe their mucus and cervical position in addition to their temperature. But because they were trained, like they know the rules, they were taught a specific method. And they there's when you're taught a specific method, and you know, the rules, there's no like gray area, because you know, it's either fertile day or not. <laughs> it's very like, cut, set in stone. And when you have that type of awareness, then you're able to really use it effectively. When you're not really clear on those (laughs) details, and then you are having sex on some of those days where you're just seeing a little bit of lotion, (laughs) then yeah, um, pregnancies will happen. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And, um, or won't happen because you're not, maybe necessarily, you know, maybe you're somebody who, if you're looking to get pregnant, needs a much better awareness of all of this uh, to to dial that in, I think. Well, and it's, it's interesting because the same, so you would think, oh, it only applies if you're trying to avoid pregnancy, because if you're trying to get pregnant, of course, you're gonna get pregnant. But there's a lot of things that women do that, like, so there's all kinds of it, like pregnancy, um, fertility challenges, that's a huge topic. And so obviously timing is one factor, but it's not the only factor. There's lots and lots of factors that can contribute to challenges conceiving. But as far as the timing is concerned, we live in a culture that, you know, we teach our girls that the menstrual cycle is always 28 days long and that you're always going to ovulate on day 14 and you have doctors telling women to have sex between days 12 and this and that of right. their cycle and yeah. all that kind of stuff. But what what really happens in like actual women, because we're not robots, is that ovulation mm-hmm. in a healthy cycle can take place anywhere from days 10 to days 23. That's a big range. And so if you are actually like, okay, I'm having sex on day 14 and blah, 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 you could be uh, accidentally using fertility awareness for birth control. (laughs) Yeah. And that's the difference between the so-called rhythm method and fertility (laughs) awareness. Okay. That's the difference. One was invented by men. And the other was discovered by women (laughs) (laughs) who paid attention to bodies, women's bodies. Well, for what it's worth, I I mean, the there's a there is a man named Dr. Eric Odblad who spent his entire like career studying cervical mucus, and so good for him. In my book, I have an entire chapter on cervical mucus because, I mean, I could go on about it for days. It's fascinating. But um, the the kind of the basis, so I'm not trying to like discount us as women, our role, but I do want to kind of acknowledge like it's just I think it was just a time, right? Like this man was doing this work in I think it was like the 50s. Like he's he's been around a long time. But um, basically, I mean, his work on cervical mucus, no one else thought to study it and look at it under a microscope and classify it into all the different types of mucus and talk about what each type does and all the functions. Like, it's really, really fascinating. Um, and his work is the foundation and basis of the way we understand mucus, uh, yeah, which is really, 
which is really interesting, but absolutely. So with the rhythm method, it's like, okay, we're going to try to figure out when you usually ovulate and assume that you're always going to ovulate around that time. <laughs> so it's very mm-hmm. much this like, okay, uh, as long as we figure out what date that you ovulate on, you just have to have sex on that day. But what the biology actually is behind like the way that our bodies actually work is that, you know, it's not that it's not helpful to have sex on the day that you ovulate, but that's not the best thing. Like that, it's not the best strategy to try to like find ovulation day and only have sex on that day. The best strategy when you're trying to get pregnant is to have sex when you have mucus because you don't need to have sex on ovulation day if the mucus keeps the sperm alive for five days. Right. Yeah. Like you can actually have sex five days before you ovulate then, you know, theoretically, and then because the mucus keeps the sperm alive, by the time you ovulate, the sperm's already there. So it's kind of shifting that fundamental understanding of our bodies. Our our understanding is based on all of these kind of dogmatic principles that fit nicely in a pregnancy wheel, <laughs> right? Yeah. What was the first day of your last menstrual period? Okay, well, let me just grab the wheel. And okay, so that means you're... But how many women ovulated on day 21 of their cycle? And are therefore a week later, according to their pregnancy wheel, and having to have doctors tell them that there's something wrong. So there's so many different functions and facets of fertility awareness from even up to and including timing your uh, due date correctly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> all of the above. Yes, absolutely. And um, and let's just, you know, as we're finishing up here, let's just remind people that you know, if you're trying not to get pregnant in the fourth trimester and beyond, barrier methods are your friend. They are. Being aware of your fertility is really great. You want to be, you know, growing that awareness during this period. And if you're going to have sex, you're still and want to prevent pregnancy, it's probably a good idea (laughs) to use a barrier method, right? Well, and I'll just Because there's so many complications for women, potential complications for women in the fourth trimester if they decide to do, you know, what people do, which is to use a hormonal method. I just want to say that out loud. We can't go into why and how and when right now. Perhaps Lisa will graciously come back and we can talk about that. But it's complicated to take estrogen while you're breastfeeding. It's complicated. So if you're not going to do that, (laughs) you will need to understand that it's a good idea to have a barrier method handy. But what's your response to that, Lisa? Well, I just wanted to... um... So, I mean, we've been talking about fertility awareness and how you can use it for birth control. And so for women in the postpartum period specifically, I think it's important to kind of acknowledge a few things. The first thing is that if you're just learning fertility awareness for the very first time and you've never charted your cycle before, the postpartum period is a bit more challenging because it's a it's actually a special situation. Like when you're cycling naturally, Mm -hmm. you're going to have your period and then you're going to have kind of like an approach to ovulation where you have some dry days and then you start seeing mucus and then you're going to ovulate. And then, you know, two weeks later, you're going to have your period. So there's a cyclical nature that helps you to understand your cycles. (laughs) When you're in the Mm -hmm. postpartum period, this cyclical nature is on hiatus. 
And so what you're doing is really, you're trying to watch for that first ovulation, which is a bit, it's not impossible. Uh, It's definitely doable. But in the postpartum period, of course, my recommendation is that if you really want to learn the the fertility awareness method and you want to start using it, then you would have to work with an instructor because you really have to um, give yourself that opportunity to really learn and to, to kind of learn in a specific kind of special situation for the very first time is, is a bit challenging. And there's a few. And learn how to stack those habits so that you're being just, just giving a light awareness to your body an extra light awareness to your body every time you go pee. Yeah. But that doesn't mean you can't take the opportunity to really start understanding and and learning about the method. Um, Because once your period does return, then you, you will have cycles and then you'll have the opportunity to really understand how it works. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just to circle all the way back before we say goodbye today, You know, this is information that informs your health as a woman, your greater, broader health as a woman. So beginning to add this awareness uh, is potentially life-saving. Yeah. Thank you so much, Lisa, for coming on the show today. Um, I, you know, as we both agree, we could talk for hours on this subject. Um, do you have, do you want to give our listeners um, a contact point for you? Well, yes. Um, for the listeners who've enjoyed this conversation, I'm, you can actually download the first chapter uh, of the book for free. The first chapter is all about why the menstrual cycle is important for health and why it is the fifth vital sign. And so you can get that over at the fifth vital sign book.com. Um, and so you'll you'll see it right there. And also, you're welcome to find me on, on the Fertility Friday podcast. So it's an entire podcast about fertility awareness and improving fertility and um, optimizing fertility uh, for pregnancy and also for overall health. So, um, so yes, and thank you so much, Esther. This was a, a lot of fun. And um, you're right, we could, we could we could keep talking for a long time. But it's so nice to chat with like-minded women in, in the sim- similar fields who are really working to empower other women with this knowledge. So I really appreciate what you do well. Thank you so much, Lisa. Well, thanks everybody for uh, coming to listen again today. And um, if you just started listening to our podcast, go to our website for trimesterpodcast.com, where you'll get to kind of get an overview of of every past podcast um, and uh, listen to more of us. I always recommend listening to the first couple of episodes early on to get a feel for what we're trying to do here. And take care, everybody. Hope everyone's thriving in the new year and having a lot of fun. Okay, bye-bye. You can subscribe to this podcast in order to hear more from us. Thank you for listening, everyone. And I hope you'll join us next time on the fourth trimester. The theme music on this podcast was created by Sean Trott. Hear more at soundcloud.com slash Sean Trott. Special thanks to my true loves, my husband, Ben, daughter, Penelope, and baby girl, Evelyn. Don't forget to share the fourth trimester podcast with any new and expecting parents. I'm Sarah Trott. Goodbye for now. Hello again. 
Thank you. 